0: All Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Intercom's The Oil and Gas Podcast. Today is Thursday, July 18, uh, with your host, myself, Glenn Parrott, and my co-host, Mr. Aaron Vandeford. Aaron, good morning. Hey, good morning. Thanks for being here. We are joined in studio today by the chief operating officer uh, of Franklin Mountain Energy, Mr. David Ramsden wood Good morning, David. Good morning,
1: guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being on.
0: No, this is fantastic. I'm glad you were able to make it. So thank you for being here. Um, and uh Today, we thought that we would kind of cover a little bit about yourself um, and Franklin Mountain Energy for our listeners who maybe don't know who David Ramsden Wood is, kind of have a dialogue on some of your perspectives uh, on the current state of the oil and gas industry. Um, And it's primarily because how you came across our radar um, was, well, first off, let me back up. We met about eight yeah, eight months ago, I'd
1: say. Yeah,
0: sure. it, I don't know, it was like November, December. Mm-hmm. And um, then uh, that was a breakfast that uh, I was invited to with you and Jacob Lorenz over at uh, Marsh, who handles the Denver area um, practice for Marsh. And it was kind of a lively dialogue. And I, first and foremost, you and and Jacob were the first ones to really, we were talking about doing a podcast and you guys encouraged us to do it. You're like, yeah, you should totally do that. And so I want to say, first off, thank you yeah. for, uh, that was sort of the nudge that, that finally, after we got done with our uh, Dallas conference at the end of February, it was like, we're going to do this. We've got so many people that we could talk to. And so it's taken me a little bit to get you onto the show, but thank you for being here. So. No,
1: I mean I think podcasts are are just the, the wave of the future. It's it's new radio. They're great. So many people travel. I listen to them all the time when I'm in airports driving my car, get in perspective without having to read on your phone. And uh, so I've enjoyed listening, and I appreciate you guys inviting me on.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, it's especially the 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 where Intercom sits, sort of in this, you know, I hate saying this yeah. intersection between uh oil and gas industry and the capital markets. We, and, and because of the very fact that we have um, this conference that comes on up where we get all these people coming in, there's so many people and so many things we can talk about and we've got you know, access to. Um, it's really, um, it seems like to me, like it would be a lost opportunity. Absolutely. So, and, uh, and beyond that, and we were also, uh, I've come across since then,
1: Uh, Like your LinkedIn page, I am a Uh, I am uh, a fairly uh, prolific uh, LinkedIn poster. (laughs) That is that is true.
0: And uh, and so uh, you know those can tend to be colorful comments. And I was like, man, we got to get David on here. So thanks again. And so um, we'll we'll kind of dive into to to some of that stuff. But before we kind of get going on this, um, for everybody, give us a little bit of background about about yourself, who who you are, or you know, because you're. Not a Colorado native.
1: Not not a native. Been here for 13 years. Uh, So so my background was born in New York City. My dad was working for Exxon uh, back when they were in New York. He was a Canadian, and he and my wife. Not my wife. Him my. That would be. That would get weird. Uh, That we'll talk about that later (laughs) in the show. Um, No, he and he and my mom were that were down there for three years. My sister and I were both born. uh, They moved back to Calgary with Dome Petroleum. So my whole my dad has been in the energy industry forever. Um, one of the reasons we bonded as tightly as we did for a lot of other reasons was he had me like researching stocks when I was 15. Really? And, and so uh, it just, it was in my blood. I always wanted to do it. And um, so I went to engineering, University of Calgary, took a petroleum engineering degree with a chemical minor. So um, you were raised,
0: I'm sorry. From, oh yeah. Primarily?
1: Yeah. And... Born in New York, raised in Calgary. Okay. Uh, when I graduated, my, my internship was actually a 16 month internship with Canadian Hunter before they got bought by Burlington. Okay and um it was a great i mean it was it was amazing it was just to get in and work with a company I, I had the stock research and I, you know, I'm an engineer for those who follow me on LinkedIn and those who have met me probably would not characterize me as a, as an engineer. And most of my friends still think I'm in sales. <laughs> um, they don't even know that I, that I actually do anything operational. Neither do my staff, to be honest, they do all the, they do all the work. I just, I'm just a figurehead really. But anyway, um, so working at Canadian Hunter, I was doing research like, and so I would stay after work and I had all these tools and I would do analysis and put reports on my boss's desk and it didn't even dawn on me that that was not proper and so then my boss said what do you want me to do with this and i said i think we should talk to the ceo this is a great deal and so we ended up going all the way on a deal that i did in my like spare time which then when anadarko hired me that's why i started in sort of a strategic planning reservoir engineering business development role so i've always sort of had that business development m a slant Mm -hmm. um and uh, so worked for Anadarko until 2006 when we bought Kermagee and Western Gas. Um, I was thinking about going to work for an investment bank. And when we talk about timing, which, which we'll talk about a lot, um, I was walking back from an interview with an investment bank that I was going to take the job of. And I bumped into the CEO of Anadarko Canada, who was waiting in line at a subway. And he said, "Hey David, how are you doing?" But he did it in the Texas. Hey David, how are you doing? You doing good? And I was like, "No, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good, Mike." But I got to be honest, I'm thinking about taking another job. He's like, "Really?" I said, "Why?" I said, "Well, there's about ten things I would change with the company culture if I was, you know, in charge. Here's my list." And I pulled it out. And he said, "Why don't you set up a meeting with me tomorrow, and we'll t- go through it?" So I built a slide deck, talked to him. He talked to me for an hour and a half. And at the end of the meeting, he said, "I don't want you to go. We're going to pay for your MBA. We want you to be an Andarco forever." Off we go. And so I was accepted to a Cornell and, and Queens Executive MBA program that Anadarko graciously supported me on. And as soon as I started, I found out my wife was pregnant, that Canada was being sold, and I was being moved to Denver. Wow. Yeah. So it was. Anyway, I, that, there. How's that for a six-year uh, uh, recap of my career? So anyway, worked at Anadarko until 2009. Left Anadarko. Went to Enter Ran the Western operations, built the Bakken position Mm -hmm. in North Dakota. Gotcha. Um, Left that in 2012. And then I've been doing entrepreneurial stuff all the way up until we founded uh, One Energy Partners in 2016 uh, with two of my partners. And One Energy Partners grew a 12,000-acre Permian position, Delaware Basin, drilled or caused to be drilled five wells, sold a third to Centennial Development, offsetting the GMT acreage, sold a third to Lillis, down in the south, and then we kept our last third, which right. we recapitalized late in 2018 with Franklin Mountain Energy. Oh, okay, um, so that's, that's was- so it, so that's how that's how it is, and and we'll talk a little bit about Franklin Mountain Energy, but but it's it just been it's been a wonderful career. I've been very very blessed. I've met so many wonderful people, and I just feel so fortunate for that and to be here.
0: No, that no, that's fantastic. That's a uh, yeah, that is quite the, the summation there. Because I was wondering, um, I guess I didn't realize the the One Energy Partners aspect of Mm -hmm. it and then because i was curious how you you know tell us about franklin mountain energy but right um, so so one energy is no one energy
1: is no more um there is a one energy partners too uh so when we recapitalized uh one of my partners brandon white he's probably listening and cringing right now um (laughs) but nonetheless uh uh, one of my best friends, he and I have worked together. We do really, really well. And he's probably one of the smartest people I know on on the deal side, M&A side, business development side. He's just super sharp. And, and I truly, truly enjoy him. So he and our operating team in Denver came over. And then um, our third partner, uh, Audrey Robertson, was the person that I actually called mid last year that introduced us to Franklin Mountain. She's a very driven, Great, deep network around oil and gas has been doing oil and gas investing for a long time. So she made the introduction to Franklin Mountain. Gotcha. Franklin Mountain is the, I mean, I have to say this, obviously, but I also mean it. They're an unbelievable group of people. Um, It's Paul Foster, Jeff Stevens, and Scott Weaver, primarily. They were the management team for Western Refining. So they were in the refinery business. They bought the refinery uh, from Chevron in about 2000. They built a refinery effectively from scratch up to what Western was. It was bought by Tesoro, which was bought by Endeavor, which was bought by Marathon. And they really raised very little equity over the course of time. So so when Marathon bought them, um, Paul grew up in Lovington, New Mexico. He always wanted to be an upstream. His father was in the oil and gas industry. The guys have a really good knowledge of the industry just not having been on the upstream side and they said hey let's make a deal so one energy was available the fed sale was coming up in september 2018 you always need a catalyst and um, we came to agreement the day the day or before the fed sale to Mm -hmm. kind of put the companies together we were successful bidder at the fed sale no one had ever heard of franklin mountain Okay. Everyone was checking them out on the website the next day, being like El Paso, and there was just a picture of mountains on the website, and people were very confused. Yeah. So anyway, so now we have ten thousand acres. We bought Rose Hill out of New Mexico. Okay. Um, early this year, uh, everything's laid out for two mile laterals. Everything's laid out for pad development. Uh, everything's laid out to to drill our returns, which is we'll talk about. That is the new model, and with the support of our capital partners um, who are, who are both actively involved in management, but, but as a board too, uh, we can, we'll, we'll, drill our returns. Is that
0: Franklin Mountain? Franklin Cap- Mountain,
1: Franklin Mountain Capital, capital. but we're right. also Franklin Mountain Energy. So gotcha. it's, it's a bit of a blurred line. So that's, that's the Franklin Mountain story. We're, we're super excited. We have a great team of people that I just think are, are the best in industry. Um, we're very small. Uh, we'll stay very small. We'll be very lean. And, and we've been fortunate because of the patience of our capital and not having to report quarters. to the markets. We have opted not to pick up a rig this year. Uh, As those who follow me on LinkedIn know, I think it's crazy the pace we're drilling. Um, I think rig count drops below 700 in the US and it needs to. I think frack count goes down and I think that we permanently shift to a lower level of activity. We want to wait till December or January when all of that craziness has happened so we can get the right rigs, the right crew, the right people, the right staff in the field to execute our program.
0: You just hit on everything that we wanted to talk about.
1: So well, I want to talk mean, about Alan his... and Carizo. Come yeah. on, I mean well, this is like the week. Let's <laughs> well, go.
2: Yeah, yeah I mean we're talking M and A. We've we got all sorts I of know. stuff that
1: we're going to talk about. Well,
0: it. and that was just it. Is that you know I was trying to lay the groundwork a little bit uh, so the people would know. Oh, okay, well, you know, uh, David. You know, maybe if they haven't heard or they don't know, you're you know you're real. You're working. You know, you guys are. You know what you guys are talking about and why people should be listening, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because. You know, I take a look, and I you know get a chuckle most mornings when I read some of the stuff that you're posting. I'm like, oh boy, I was with you for the first part, but
1: wow at the end. Yeah, (laughs) I I usually take a twist. I I, even on this podcast, I'll I'll go off on tangents, (laughs) and people say, "How did you end up there?" That's that's me.
0: So you have a blog, um, yes, davidramsonwood.com, yes, um, which not only has your hot take of the day, uh, hashtag hot take of the day, but also mentioned
1: your book. Yes. Um, so when was that published? So I haven't published it yet. I'm working on the publishing. I'll probably end up self-publishing at the end of this year. Okay. Um, the genesis of the book was what was at the end of Enter Plus, um, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners can think about this in their career. When you have a traumatic experience, which usually coincides with firing, um, <laughs> and a company going a different direction, um, But when you're in the thick of it and you think that you're the most important person in the room and the most important person in the company and you go from 300 emails, four rigs, a $2 billion asset, you're the king of the world. You're on an Indian reservation coordinating all the activity. And then you get fired and you go home and you reintroduce yourself to your family who haven't seen you in months, don't particularly like you. And uh, you wake up the next day and have no emails, no phone calls, nobody to talk to, nobody cares. And on the back of that, I went to the first winter nape with a piece of paper that was basically like, I would like to buy your assets and I would like to raise $500 million. And it was the most depressing downtrodden time of my life. And the way I got through it was I started writing a book and the book is called what the fuck is wrong with everybody else, what they didn't teach you in business school. And for, for the listeners out there, I'll read chapter one, chapter one, losing weight, eat less, exercise more it is that easy. Chapter two. And the whole plan of the book was really just that chapter with a whole bunch of blank pages. Um, but it, it sort of morphed into a bit of a blog dialogue and, and sort of all the things that I learned. And, and the, the answer to the question at the end of the day is what's wrong with everybody else is you and and that you're not that important. And that what matters is your connection to people. And your connection with your family and what you do in the, in the community. So it was very cathartic and therapeutic. Um, and uh, I've sort of parked it. But now with the success of One Energy, selling it, recapitalizing it and having a little bit more of a, a platform, even though LinkedIn was an accidental thing. Um, the plan will be to approach it and I love mentoring I love all the people that reach out to me. And, um, so that that's the book and, and some excerpts are on the website, but now you seem to be living that, that book. Not I, that I am before, living, but- I am living the book. Um, and actually, you know, the Franklin Mountain story came out of one of my chapters. And again, I wrote all this in 2013. So right. the book feels a bit outdated. So when I publish it, I've moved a lot from it, but there's a chapter called, if you have to pick up the phone more than once to raise money, you shouldn't be raising money. And um, so when we did the Franklin Mountain, I knew Audrey, she's been a friend of mine since 2014. I knew she was connected and she'd raised a fund um, called Copper Trail Partners. Gotcha. And I had no idea, I, I'm not a fundraiser. And so I called her and said, we need to take this asset private because the Permian assets are not being valued in the M&A market correctly. There is a drillier returns model. We need private patient capital. And the Franklin Mountain guys, two of them had invested in Copper Trail and lo and behold, we're in Phoenix having a meeting with these guys and over a meeting and a lot of back work and a lot of sort of business planning, uh, we got the deal done. Yeah. Um, so, so anyway, so it's amazing that the book, a lot of the themes in there have have carried out to actually be accurate. So. That's been fun.
0: So we can look forward to something by the end of the year.
1: End of the year. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You can hold me to that.
0: Okay, good. Because well, we, uh,
1: we'll be pestering you. Okay, we'll great. Be touching great. I get a lot of requests for it, so I will. I will make sure I get it published. Alrighty. Uh, you heard it first. So. or maybe not. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, okay. Well, let's get into it. Uh, let's let's talk about that. Um, not the book, but let's. Uh, you know, your hot take of the day. It's pretty opinionated post most days. Um, but uh, M and uh, was you know. Certainly top of the list this morning or this week. Um Callan and Callen, Carrizo.
1: Absolutely. What
0: are your thoughts on that one, David?
1: Oh, what? it's a great that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked. Um, I always look forward to Mondays because I know that there's going to be some deal announced. And uh so I woke up this morning and it was Callan and Carrizo, or rather, Monday morning. Yeah. Um, so I mean, obviously MA absolutely needs to happen. And and so don't disagree. Um But does it make sense? Does that deal make sense? No. And I believe that the quote I used in my hot take was, if a teenage boy has acne, you just want to get rid of it so you can fake a photo and get him into USC. That's what happens when you buy an asset that's you're a pure play Permian player and you end up buying an Eagleford asset. The, The deal makes absolutely no logical sense to me. Callen was absolutely perfect to be laid out in two basins, pure play, offsetting Diamondback as an example. Diamondback is a known acquirer. You have to be going up market. So Diamondback is a near $20 billion company taking out a $2 billion company in Callen. That makes logical sense. The market will like that. But then when a company goes and tries to get big, I mean, anyway, I, I just can't, I can't understand it it's going to be up to a shareholder vote notwithstanding the absolute carnage that's occurred in the equity markets this week where everyone is just like you know heat your homes with your equity shares just light them on fire but um but i i have a hard time seeing this deal go through i think it's like penn virginia and denbury where where that deal didn't make any sense shareholders ultimately crushed it so um we shall see but we need m a well that's that's
2: one of the things that 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 we're seeing is a lot of these deals are being done all equity type deals and the longer and the less sense it makes, the further away those those valuation deltas get right. in the market. Uh, and so we saw that in 2008 and, and some of those time timeframes. Uh, but if we're not able to come up with some cash, right. with some real, hey, we're, we're convicted on this, we're, this is what we're gonna get out of shareholders, that alignment really has to be there, I think.
1: Yeah, well, um, it feels, to me, and I said this in a post, and I believe this, the day that, the, that I read about it, it needs to happen. The way oil and gas companies are raising capital right now is to cut heads.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, I've I've said for a long time I think overall employment in our industry is going down 30% in the next 2 years. Because, you know, if you have a completion engineer who is in charge of designing clusters and charges and fiddling with that and that is their job, they're going to do something and they're going to cost money and they're going to change your completion design. We are beyond that now. We are in we need your completion engineer, the one, to focus where the costs are, which is water, sand, logistics. Mm-hmm. Get your frack in the ground. Get your well on. And so by reducing headcount and saving hundreds of millions of dollars, those hundreds of millions of dollars can be drilled into wells that in the Permian have a 2x PV10. So $100 million bucks turns into $200 million, which turns into a $100 million borrowing base, which turns into $200 million more. And that's the only way these guys are raising capital. And so, you know, I, I mean our industry is going the way of coal in that there are so few publicly traded coal companies, but coal still powers the world. Right. And so I, I see more Chevrons, more Exxons, you know, Conoco's got to get bigger. Oxy and totally makes sense to me. We can talk about that. I have a massive crush on uh, Vicky Hullab. I've never met her, but if I get a chance, I'll be really excited. Um, that was just so ballsy what she did. And so, you know, we'll let's see. talk
0: about that. Let's talk about Oxy and Anadarko. Um,
1: I mean, uh, you know, like Anadarko, I think their assets are great. And I used to work there. Um, I think that they probably weren't executing. I mean, and every time they tried to execute, there was a Macando. There was a Tronox right. uh, fraudulent conveyance. There's a, you know, m- all the things, uh, Firestone in Colorado. Right. I mean, it, then it, there's just been tough. So Anadarko goes away. Chevron comes out a huge winner, a uh, billion dollar break fee. I mean, right. like Mike, Mr. Worth, you are the man as well. Uh, so well done, but but for but for Vicky to take Miss Hall, I don't know her, so I'll say Miss Hall. Um, for her to do what she did, I think is exemplary of what leaders need to do, which is I am convicted that this is the right asset, and I'm going to make that happen. Now she should hide the tail numbers when she flies places because everyone knew where she was going. But when she sold the African assets and when she saw Warren Buffett and she got those deals done in advance of this transaction to avoid a shareholder fight. I mean, this, she's going to wear, this is her legacy. She's going to Jack Welch it into a book or she's going to get fired. But man, I got, I give her huge credit for balls and I got to give, I want all the other CEOs that are listening to this. Like we have to do, we have to be different. If we want to survive, we have to be different.
0: Yeah. They were definitely aggressive. uh, And they were, you know, and we loved, of course we were reporting it on 360 and we were uh, taking a look and, you know, the letters that they were writing, they're like, Hey, we're still out here, guys, yeah. and we're serious. So take us seriously. Yeah, uh, which was great. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I've shared this story before. You know, we've got Oxys, uh, our keynote lunch address on Monday at the upcoming conference. Yeah, and originally uh, Cedric Berger, the CFO, was uh, intending to do the presentation that he did at Howard Wheel, which was more about their carbon sequestration and uh, their. That, that aspect of their business. yeah. And then I get this phone call afterwards, and I'm thinking, oh, no, they're going to pull out. Because they got this, you know, something much bigger. They're, they're going to be kind of busy yeah, you with know, exactly. yeah. integration. Yeah. yeah. And they're like, so would you guys mind if, uh, we know we committed to you that we were going to talk about our carbon business. Would you mind if we maybe changed the uh, subject? And I was like, well, you got something new to talk about? <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> Of course, of course you can. Yeah. And so we're looking forward to that. Vicky, I don't think, is going to be uh, joining us, but she might. I, I don't know. Um, but Cedric, uh, the CFO, certainly will be there. And um, I guess one of the things on that on that deal, what's
1: your take on on the Warren Buffett aspect of it? Do you think that was expensive? Uh, I mean, again, define expensive. Um, I, I think it's an 8% prep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's what private equity charges as a pref rate. That's what an industry that has historically had horrible return on capital employed and that he has avoided like the plague, that is what it costs. And when a lot of these companies are maxed out on debt and they can't really go borrow some more, uh, you know, Buffett, Buffett has shown to be in 2008 with the financial crisis. Like he picks good companies that make a good thing. So is this a bad thing for Oxy shareholders? You know, the share performance would certainly suggest it. Um, and I think that the next two quarters after the close are going to be very interesting. Right. Do they execute? Do they drop rigs like they've talked about? Do they maximize the efficiency? Do they grow their business? And Icon's going to be there in the same way that yeah. that yeah. McGee and Anadarko came together when I was there was because Carl Icon is a bulldog. And and like if we if we talk about what activist investors should do. Um, We saw Braxis this morning had an activist jump in and basically be like, you know, when the CEO owns $1.7 million of equity and makes 700 grand a year, is that right? And uh, on an executive compensation structure, I mean, I think we've got out of whack. What I love about private equity, and, and I'll give props to our partner for One Energy, which was Carnelian, you know, their first three investments were Bison, One Energy, and Percussion, Um, you know, in the last, Mm -hmm. since they started, those are three exits. I don't know of another private equity firm doing what they do and the way that they approach their business and the way they think through, they're just super impressive. But when private equity teams get paid, it's because you got paid low salary. You were totally aligned. You put a whole bunch of your net worth into this deal. You grew the company and you sold the company. So you eat what you kill. And this sort of CEO for higher mentality where guys are making five million bucks a year, own like a million shares, and and are you know taking out 30, 40, 50 million pay packages, that is at the expense of shareholders. Dude, you are so just front that, running me on is, all So this. is that a,
2: a hurdle for MA?
1: <laughs> I mean it shouldn't be. So, like let's go to activists. The, everyone in New York, there's an ungodly amount of money that they can't make eight percent. They can make one percent on T bills. Yeah. So buy equities, take prep positions, get aggressive, force companies to do something, cut headcount. If you want to reduce headcount, reduce it at the top. That's where all your GNA is. Right. Um, you know, Franklin Mount, I'm very proud to say is like, we, we're all owners in the business. And so when, when we're drilling wells, we're writing checks. And if we're successful, it's because our team executed and everyone's going to do well. And if we don't execute, I'm going to be fired and no one's going to do well. And that is how all companies should work. Um, so I don't think it's a barrier for M&A, but I do think we need some activists to get in some shares and really start shaking things up. And we need guys to be hot, to go hostile. Like what happened to hostile takeovers? Like put some guys in play. Hmm. Remember Elliot and QEP in January? Yeah. Like that was aggressive. And then we've heard, what are we, July 18th? Well, I was just going
2: to say, I mean, do they, take, do they take that one private?
1: Uh, I mean, what do you do?
2: That'll be interesting.
1: So... That's what New York does, right? New, New York and, and, and I'm using New York to represent banking, but, mm-hmm. but banking makes good decisions where capital can be deployed effect- effectively, and our industry can deploy capital effectively. I know we haven't historically because we've been chasing growth, but the best way to include to improve your return on capital employed is to cut your CapEx programs in half. and so doing, decline your production, and in so doing, we will see prices rebound and we will have a healthier market with more cash flow to pay dividends. New York can make this happen. For whatever reason, they're not. So, along those same lines,
2: smaller companies. It, we've had this grow or die mentality. Right. And are you advocating you know, the small companies get into this, this dividend yield
1: type model? or Uh, does it take different capital or it's 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 do the right thing for the business here's an example right so when i started my career in 2001 and and the the mindset was when a well is on decline every molecule that isn't produced today is going to be produced at the end of the life why high permeable gas reservoir under competitive drainage with compression you're always maxing out your rate so yes in fairness that mcf that you don't produce today doesn't get produced till the end of the life So therefore, you call your pumper out at 3 a.m. They go fix the thing. They drive out. You you put all this effort in and you bring the well back on. We're now almost 20 years later, and we're still calling guys out at 3 a.m. for shale wells that are oil that in 1.5 times the shut-in time, they will flush the amount of production that you lost. So at Franklin Mountain, as an example, and for all small companies, when our well goes down, we don't worry about it. Because when we get there, it will flush, and within a day and a half, it'll be produced all the same volume that it was going to before. Like that's just such a simple, low cost thing. When we frack a well, our gas has to be tied in, our water has to be tied in. Mm -hmm. Why are operators completing single well pads without infrastructure, renting frack tanks, and trucking water at four bucks a barrel? When if they wait 45 days, they can have their water tied in and do it for a dollar. Like these are the decisions in terms of like minor that doesn't even change the business model that just it doesn't make any sense. So production growth, all that stuff, even aside, make better decisions. Um, So should private companies be going to a distribution model? No, they should be generating a lot of cash flow and using that surplus cash to either buy back stock or pay down debt or do a special dividend and positioning themselves to sell because that is the right thing to do for their shareholders. And I don't care that you make 5 million bucks a year, that's neat, enjoy your beach house when you're done. But the rest of it, we we need to make this industry work, otherwise it's gonna stay broken for a long time. Yeah, and I think you hit on a, a point where, where we were looking at a graphic this morning on
2: Saudi Aramco versus versus the size of, of a lot of the other independents and even majors here in the in the US. We all have to kind of get on the same boat. And and you know, you see I think you talked about it in, in one of your posts with with Callan coming out and saying, Hey, we got free cash flow and growth. Right. And you're like, what well, how are we getting back to this growth idea? Right.
1: Um, we're not all on the same same boat. No. No. And, and, and I just, what I don't understand is the, you know, you, we talked about this off camera. Um, my hot takes, is they, they're not original and <laughs> you know, everyone is talking about this at coffee. No, really are. no yeah. one is saying it out loud. And what I don't understand is I know a lot of the executives of these companies, they're, they're brighter than me. And Like shareholders want them to be bold and say, we are going to cut capital for the rest of the year. We are going to drop. Look at the duck count in the United States, 8,000 plus ducks that are, you know, between horizontal and and vertical. I know that people question the number, but in every data source that I use, I can replicate roughly in the Permian 3,500 ducks. Some are working inventory, some are pads, blah, blah, blah. But we're drilling, based on EIA data, 550 wells a month. We're completing 500. Every month, we're adding 50 ducks at 4 million bucks a well, which is $200 million of stranded capital that makes absolutely no sense. You could drop rig count in the Permian from 460, where it is today, to 300, and continue to drill for the next year before you work through your duck count. Your half-cycle returns are phenomenal. Your rig rates are gonna come down. Your efficiency is going to come down. Your infrastructure is going to catch up and prices are going to go higher. Like everyone knows this. So what the hell are people doing? Yeah. If you're the, the, the small cap guy
0: and you know, you have this decision to make, you're like, okay, well, you know, I don't know how I'm going to be able to generate free cash. I, you know, I've got one rig going. I could stand it down, you know, what am I going to say? He's the one guy out there. Everyone else is just doing what they're doing. Yeah. So he's like, okay, well I make my sacrifice, but I'm not going to re- be rewarded by the investors at all.
1: Right. But is, I mean, I guess that's the question. So, so here's an open question. Everyone listening. I assume everyone's an investor in some way. I mean, do you not want to see rig count in these companies fall? Uh, Call the CEO and say, guys, I own 5% of the stock. Why are we still drilling with 50 rigs? And, I mean, let's look at Chevron's a great example. Of the three companies that are up in the last year percentage-wise, it's Dorchester Minerals, Mm -hmm. Anadarko, and Chevron. Dorchester pays a 10% yield. Now, we can talk about the mineral business, but that's what they do. Chevron pays 4%, massive free cash flow, great business. They're growing in the Permian, perfect. Anadarko got bought. That is your template for how to be successful. Everyone else down 50%. So increase your dividend, do the things. If you're a small cap, who cares? Just do the right thing for your shareholders. Shut down your rigs, buy back stock, and keep buying back stock until you think your stock is fairly valued. Um, the rise of the generalist investor. Uh huh.
0: Do they get it? Or is that what's driving this?
1: I, I, I don't know. I mean, people talk a lot about ESG. I was talking to a, a guy in the service industry this morning talking about electric frack fleets right um I- interesting but and people get super excited about it and, and it is a good interesting technology just like tesla is a good interesting car but in 110 degree heat does an electric engine work in the permian uh i think they're having some trouble uh when the gas that needs to go into it is uh 1100 btus and everything in the permian is 1300 btus now you need a scrubber so when are you going to blow up some of these turbines that are that are sort of like you're getting off so generalist investors don't understand the nuance but then they ask a company on a conference call have you moved your entire fleet to e stuff yeah. and then the entire executive goes guys we got to get all the e fleets like everywhere we can go so that our investors are happy because corporate governance is really the issue no corporate governance is not the issue oil at $57 and not returning capital to your shareholders is the issue So, yes, can we do better with methane emissions? 100%. Franklin Mountain, everything is in pipe the day we go in. We're drilling six-well, three-well, four-well pads so we can capture emissions. The guys in Colorado, the guys all over, everyone is doing this because methane does 84 times the amount of greenhouse gas impact that CO2 does, but it goes away in nine years. So if we as an industry capture more methane – We've solved. Well, why?
0: Even Rich made mention, Rich Farmer from Great yeah. Western made mention of this last week. He goes, why wouldn't I capture that? Of and, course you should. And, yeah. and it,
1: A, it makes sense. That's not a governance thing. That's a good well, business thing. Right? Exactly. You yeah. know, when you talked about uh, Oxy with the CO2 and, and there's a company in Canada who's now capturing CO2 yeah. from the atmosphere and pumping it into these, these wells for uh, EOR. You know, these are good things the industry is doing because it makes sense. But, you know, letting AOC Talk about the Green New Deal that everyone knows isn't coming in and reacting to that and thinking that's going to bring generalist investors back is wrong. Buying back your stock and making it go up 75% this year is going to bring investors back into your stock, in my humble opinion. <laughs> um, so we've seen a lot of
2: stock being bought back. Not, a, not maybe at the rate that you want across the board. Right. But we've still seen those shares well, go down. Right. Well, why, why do you think that is? I think ultimately, I think they're probably not making the right decisions operationally that it, you know, you can buy back as much shares as you want, but if you're not taking care of the business, right. Then you're, you're investing in a business
1: that I don't really want to be a part of anyway. Right. And, and so how do we do that? I mean, you look at the best companies that have low SG&A per barrel, Mm -hmm. right? Can we hire people to look at all of the things? Mm Yeah, but it's, you know, sand logistics. That was the big buzzword last year. We're using all in basin sand because we're saving money because we pump so much. Maybe maybe it saves money, but your supply chain is bringing like six people in they're finding all this sand they're moving it in they're not looking at crush they're only looking at cost they're pumping as much as they possibly can instead of looking at is 2200 pounds per foot actually optimal in all the basins we've seen since 2016 well performance on a normalized basis has not improved even as we've tested higher frack loading and so to me lower sand and the, the service companies are going to get their margin. So if you buy sand on your own, they're going to jack up your chemical prices. If you buy <laughs> chemical on your own, they're going to jack up your horsepower charges. So like, but these companies have built this massive infrastructure of people who need to justify their jobs to their boss. And when they're not surfing the Internet, hoping their boss doesn't walk by, they're doing what they're told to do, which is not moving the needle. Moving the needle is lower frack horsepower so that you're not using as much so you can charge less, using less barrels per foot of fluid, recycling fluid you already have on location, right. and lowering frac loading. And here's the thing, widen your spacing. Why, I mean, in the, I gave a speech in 2014, uh, it was October, so oil prices were falling, to Denver SPE, and it was called The Death of the Bakken. And 50 people in there, much like you guys are now, and our listeners are, their eyes were very wide at what I was saying. And it was, we're way over drilled, We're way over dense. Continental had just announced a six-well Springer program that no one had ever heard of. And I'm like, I promise you, this White and Kodiak no premium all equity deal is the sign of the top. And Continental is moving a ton of rigs into Oklahoma because they have no inventory left. Now, the Bakken has developed, no doubt, but the entire industry moved into a different place and no one was paying attention. So when I look at these, these operators at well spacing of 300 feet in the Eagleford, that was never going to work. Look at oil in place. Like, this is not about, oh, our inventory is 30 years. I would say industry is overstating inventory by 30 or 40%. Really? Absolutely. When you're drilling wells at 300 feet that are parent-child and not fully developing a section, and then trying a whole bunch of well density and announcing that, in every play we've ever done in this industry, that has proven to be too dense. So if we're drilling wells at 800 to 1,000 feet and we're still getting the same EURs with less inventory and less capital and less people and less sand and less water, return on capital employed will go up and our stock will go up.
0: Yeah. Why do companies drill on economic wells?
1: That is a great question. Why do investors continue to give them money? <laughs> why, why are there zombie companies out there that haven't declared chapter 11? Um, there are so many that just have poor assets that they've made bad decisions on and it's a one way option for the management team in case oil goes to 70 then their stock goes from 4 cents to 40 cents and everyone makes money but like as investors they have to cut the taps they need to shut those companies down they need to merge those assets in in private equity companies they need to be smashing companies that aren't working together this whole concept of we're gonna drill to get cash flow so someone will buy us at some multiple, neat. That's not actually a business if the wells you're drilling are shitty. I can say that. I'm gonna say say it. I'm gonna say it. (laughs) Own it. (laughs) So so yeah, I mean, the whole business model is broken because we're using the rules in 2014. And when we look at private equity firms who made money and all the guys that got rich, between 2001 and 2014, oil went from 20 bucks to $147. If you can't make money when oil goes up seven times, you are an idiot. Everyone who bought in 2014 to 2019 is still expecting that the private equity game is easy. And they're like, oh, we're going to make all this money if we just build land and drill a well and flip it. Right. And then they say, oh, there's no buyers. And we have to actually drill these wells. But we have four guys. It's like a land guy, a finance guy, and like. We've drilled our three wells. We're, yeah, we're ready like to we're, get this. we done. Yeah. And so, again, that model is fundamentally broken. You know, I keep pushing Franklin Mountain. We have private capital that is long-term capital that is going to drill our returns. If the market comes back and it makes sense to consolidate, we'll sell. If it doesn't, we won't. And every single person who's a decision maker at the company owns a lot of stock. And if I don't do well, I will be fired. That's how public companies should be. That's how boards need to hold their people accountable. And if we talk about this, boards are where this needs to change.
0: I was going to say, why aren't you seeing that from the boards?
1: I don't, again, I don't know i mean board is it because they're you know they're generally more experienced and haven't necessarily been in industry and they're sort of pseudo retired that's how they have the time to be on boards and they remember the industry in 2001 and 2002 and the way it used to be in the good old days yeah. At, i don't perhaps know. but but these executive compensation pay packages that aren't paid per, for, for performance just don't make any sense when boards are are approving deals that just make no logical sense. That I mean, of course, Callen was going to get crushed. A pure play Permian player added Eagleford to their portfolio. And they worked really hard to get to that position from a Gulf of Mexico right. player on right. through to like how we did, did it? Can you imagine that board meeting? Hey guys, we want to add an asset in a basin that we're not, and and also the Delaware asset doesn't overlay us at all. So there's really no synergies, and we can probably make thirty or forty million dollars a g a headcount reduction, which is really just the executive team at Carrizo I think mm-hmm. and and the board doesn't go like you guys are totally off base and oh by the way we're gonna bring in a team that knows what you're doing we should be selling a dime back I, I don't I don't logically get it are these the bankers that are coming
2: in and saying hey the, the markets saying you got to have size of at least three billion you guys hit this mark it doesn't matter whether you're two basins that kind of stuff this is all about a size and so we've seen you know size, Directly correlated to price to cash flow?
1: You know, are they getting maybe sold a bill of goods? Because the banker's got to go do a job too. Yeah, but bankers do ban- banking for fees. I love bankers and they're very smart, but at the core, like the reason the hot take of the day works is because I cannot monetize it. I, I'm not monetized. It is an opinion that I post out there that people can like, they can hate, they can reject it. Bankers are going into your office to do things, right. and they're going to tell you that that thing is a good thing to do. But everyone logically thinks the Permian players should get together, the non-Permian players should get together, our industry should go to half the companies, 70% of the headcount, and then return shareholder cash. That's what we should do. We don't need a banker to do that. Um,
0: so what did, well, so let's, let's go back on the M&A and just talk about uh, what you think about um, Simrex and uh, Resolute
1: logical deal in Basin and, and Resolute coming through bankruptcy had a whole bunch of debt guys that ended up getting converted into equity that don't want to own equity. So again, from an activist or activist standpoint, that deal made logical sense. And yes, Resolute right. would like to be sold at a higher price. And yes, Simrex would like to not be $50 right now. But I thought that deal was logical mm-hmm. and totally sensical and there should be more of that. And we could go through and list all of the companies that have assets that overlay, that make tremendous amounts of sense. Right. And I would do that for no fees. <laughs> because it's, and it's just so logical. Right. So um, yeah, I like I like that deal. Comstock, Covey Park. I, again, in basin, interesting. And, and I think we've seen NGP do some more of this where, they're taking stock as a public company as an exit and aligning their interests with shareholders. So when you see Jerry Jones and in this case Denim getting an exit where Jerry owns like eighty five percent and yeah. Denim owns like fourteen percent, so I mean it's a, and then the, the, it's it's a pretty illiquid stock. Obviously, it's going to be a difficult. But but it's a pure play Haynesville player that's effectively private that just has like a float every day. So they're either right about gas or wrong about gas. They're right about the Haynesville or they're wrong about the Haynesville. But at least they've made a pure play bet. And those two parties are fully invested in it and they're not going to waste anyone's money. So you can guarantee they're going to do what's best for that business. So I like the deal. I don't know how you invest in gas. I mean, I remember for the last 10 years, I've always been like gas could never be below $4. Right. And then in 2008, I said it, and then 2010 and 2012. And I mean, we are just so good at drilling horizontal wells. And the Marcellus is just so big and so good. And we can produce as much gas as we possibly want that's economic at 3 bucks. I just, I personally don't see an investment in gas that makes any sense. Um, But I've been wrong in my life probably once a day, at least. So good good for Denim and Jerry Jones for having conviction and doing it.
0: Yeah, how many Jerry Joneses are out there though?
1: Uh, well, I they're, think only one.
0: Yeah, <laughs> no, that are willing to do that.
2: That are well, willing to do it. I mean, you know, we saw it with the Oxy deal, right? You saw it, someone who's really convicted from an investment standpoint to uh, help get something done. Absolutely. And Jerry was that catalyst, I think, for yeah for that deal. And I think it does take take capital that is convicted on an idea to actually get something over the hurdle and, and probably align that. Um, and so, you know, if there's if there is alignment on the capital side that is willing to be supportive of the business and not just trying to flip or turn or or have the flavor of the day idea,
1: right? Then maybe this will work. Well, there there has been some interesting, I mean, if you look at we haven't talked about EQT and rice. Yeah. What is so ironic about that Next is that list. it's it's just it's because it's a natural flow, baby. We just go with this. Um when you think about the fact that Rice sold their company, ended up with shares in the company that their company acquisition ultimately screwed up, then for them to come back and get to take it over, I mean, that is, that is I great. I want to get paid again. That yeah. is great drama. Yeah. Uh, same with Kimmeridge and PDC, right? When they sold Eris, and now Kimmeridge is activist in PDC stock, it was the exact same case that it was a company that probably shouldn't have done that acquisition, ended up giving shares, and then now they've gone activist. What I will say is at least, again, the Rice Brothers and Kimmeridge, at least they're they're skin in the game and they're 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 acting on behalf of shareholders. So when do boards start listening to activist shareholders and how many more can there be out there? So maybe there isn't a Jerry Jones, but I mean, there's a whole bunch of guys right now that are scared that the market's gonna go into a recession and that they're moving to cash and that this is the most hated bull market in the history of ever. So there's a ton of cash on the sidelines and those generalists could go buy seven, eight, 10% of some stock and say, here's what we're doing, guys. Company A, you're selling. We're cutting staff. We're cutting rigs. We're cutting this. You can make a killing if you go activist. I I really believe that this is the time when it hasn't been before. So
0: so some of these companies that are out there should be worried about activists. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. absolutely. And, and if management is, a, is an executive team for hire and they own 1% or 2% of the float and 98% are mom and pop and and hedge funds and employees and, and people like, people should want to see good stewardship of their money. And oh, completely. A, and again, when yeah. I look at private equity, I mean, they eat what they kill. They raise money. They promise the LPs are going to deliver. And if they don't deliver, they can't raise money. And there's a lot of private equity guys that are shutting down now because they had poor results. Not only the companies, but the actual funds. That's what we need in these in these shareholders. This isn't like, you don't get to be the, being the CEO of a public company is not a right. It is a privilege. And when your shareholders, when you drive your stock down for reasons that are beyond just price and make stupid decisions, you should be held accountable and fired. That's why you make so much more money than the rest of the employees. So take accountability and own it.
0: On the, uh, I'm just kind of curious because you're mentioning uh, private equity. So a bit of an aside, uh, you know, in terms of being held accountable, um, the two in 20 model, is it still
1: around or is it, I mean, is it going to be modified or? It's uh, not, it's not my... Capital raising is not my my lane, uh, so to speak. But yeah, the, I mean the two and twenty is the ubiquitous both private equity model and and, and, and what fund, and yeah. head, is it going to be around? Yes, can we make twenty percent in this environment? I would say that real oil and gas acquisitions price like if you hedge price out are thirteen to fifteen percent rate of return deals. And with a little bit of leverage, because you bought some PDP, you could maybe get them to 17 or 18%. But, but like in a, in a normal run rate that doesn't include like, oh, the Permian just went horizontal and I got a huge thing. Or oil went from 30 to 140 and I got a big pop. Right. When you buy assets at PV10 and there's a lot of cash flow, by definition, you are, not, you are getting a 10% rate of return. So can a 20% hurdle rate for private equity actually work in a drill your returns model? No. Therefore, the model has to change as these companies shed assets, which they will. You know, the Oxy, they've sold Anadarko's overseas stuff. They're going to pay back Warren Buffett, and they're going to sell great assets that companies can manage with a billion dollar commitment, but you're going to make 8%. And the management team is going to have a job. They're not going to get rich on this, but they're going to build a great company with a great culture that does the right thing and pays money back. That's where our industry is going, and that's where private equity has to go in the next three to four years.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Um, earlier, unless you have a follow on.
1: No.
2: Go.
0: Forecasts. You oh. even mentioned this one. Uh, and let's start off with rig counts.
1: <laughs> I think horizontal rig count goes below 700. I, I really do. So we're By at. One. Um, Give me a date. Well, so I'm always <laughs> aggressive on timing. Because I, and, and I read your uh, you know, the, the, the article say. the other day. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I think September 1st. And the reason I say that, and the reason I made the bet about July 1st, when it was March, was... If you look at the run rates of capital, relative to announced capital of many of these companies, and when they came out in January and said, our budget is $50 flat, they didn't really think oil was going to be $50 flat, but the world was collapsing. And the best thing about Christmas day was that the stock market wasn't open because it was going down horrifically. (laughs) So you come in January, you announce $50 budget, but all these guys are like, eh, it's not going to matter. So their run rate in the first quarter is like 35% of their total year capital. And then we're going to see in August that I bet the run rate in the second quarter might be 30%. And when you add 35 and 30, that's 65, and you have two quarters left and 35% to go. Um, You know, we talk about continuous drilling obligations. Wyoming doesn't have that. New Mexico doesn't have that. The Bakken doesn't have that. Texas has that, and a lot of the things in the Eagle Ford shouldn't be being drilled. All right, but by September though, I
0: mean, that's that's a, a pretty significant drop.
1: It would be yeah. 130 horizontal rigs. Yeah. So you know, let's say let's go September 30th by the end of the quarter, just to be a little bit more generous. That's 12 weeks, 10 rigs a week horizontal.
0: And you haven't hit 10. I mean, you're doing like minus five, minus eight.
1: Uh, yeah. Okay. So so it's it's a, it's aggressive, and so September 30th might might be. A, it might be aggressive, but I really believe that that's what our industry has to do. So maybe, maybe in this case, I'm hoping that that's what we do and it's less so what we're going to do, but I just truly believe that 700 rigs is the correct number for us to be running as a, as a country for the betterment of our industry. For the industry. WTI. (sighs) Um, Here's a question. Do we roll over in production? If, If, if the Eagleford goes into declines because we've overdrilled and we've overfracked and now declines are fundamentally steeper and we slow down activity, do we see a rollover? The Bach and I looked at it this month. If you look at all the wells that came on before January 1st, 2019, and just look at the decline from the first five months of production data, that's 20%. So that's 1.3 million barrels down to about 1.1 with no activity. 20% 20% decline in five months for an entire basin. So if we truly do slow rigs and slow fracks, which we do to manage <coughs> manage capital at the end of the year, do you actually see production flatten or decline? Then oil goes to 60, 65, or 70. If we continue on this path where we are and guys just continue to complete wells and we get to 13 million barrels a day by the end of the year, I, I don't think 46 is out of the question. So mm.
2: lo- along that same line, if we... You know, what do you need to see in your business or or these guys to put a rig back to work? And so if we see oil go to 60, how fast does that pace get picked back up? And do we fall back
1: into old habits? I mean, again, great question. An investor should govern it. I'll tell you what we'll do at Franklin Mountain. We look at the rates of return of our business at a $55 kind of oil and 250 gas. Everything we're doing is from pads so we can do it as cheap as possible. I don't know how cheap necessarily, but you're gonna go six wells all surface as economically as you can. You're gonna bring in a frack crew, you're gonna frack all of them, you're gonna be tied into market. And if we like the returns of fifty five dollars, we'll pick up a rig at the end of the year. If we don't like the returns of fifty five dollars, we won't. That's the decision that companies should be making. So I don't care if oil's sixty or sixty-five or seventy. We all know that's fleeting. Mm-hmm. What what we should be doing is saying sixty dollar oil is awesome because I can pay down my debt. I can get my debt below two times EBITDA, debt to EBITDA. I can buy back stock. I can pay a dividend. And cool, oil is $60. My business is great. My employees are happy. My my options are great. The investors want to talk to me at conferences again. You know, wow. It feels good. Yeah. And then <laughs> let me talk to you about my electric rig frack fleet. Because <laughs> it's saving me money.
0: Yeah. right. No, and that's just it. You know, I mean, you know, we're, we're having you know, what, in approximately, uh, you know, three and a half weeks from today, people are all gonna, we've got a ton of investors that are coming on in, we've got kind of presenting companies coming in, and they're all gonna come in, and all these guys have got this opportunity to talk to investors and tell them what their plans are, how they're gonna navigate through the remainder of the year. Yeah. What do you need to hear?
1: We are going to drill nothing but two mile laterals. We are going to drill nothing but pads. We respect that parent-child well relationships are a massive issue. And if you go into an area and drill one well and come back, you are going to have less results. In order for us to accomplish that, this is the steady rate run rate we're going to do. Our production is going to be lumpy because we're going to bring six wells on at a time and then drill six wells in a row, and we're going to decline our production.
0: And how many companies, as long as we're forecasting, zero,
1: uh, are going to say that? Zero are going to say that. <laughs> Unless they've listened to podcasts and they've, they've had an epiphany as a result of this, <laughs> so great what are your expectations? Discussion?
0: What are you expecting to hear?
1: Uh, I think guys are going to say that we're, we're growing production on less capital, we're saving costs per well, we're drilling really effectively, and we're going to stay flat for the rest of the year. That's what I think you're going to uh, say. Yeah.
0: Why, I, why would you even say growth? Uh,
1: I know, but they're, go- they're going to. They're, they're going because, you know, in the, again, we're all talking about it at the coffee table, and, and the investors who are in the room aren't saying, Are you fucking kidding me right that, that that's it right that's it that that is the question that investors ask i'm not an investor that has any pull Well,
0: what was it on the last earnings call not 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 the current round but prior uh on the Tudor pickering call um mm-hmm. you know they were like for the love of god what are you guys doing right um
1: and, and when t and tph is writing that in their morning note yeah. rscg is writing this in their morning note. like again i i this is why I don't understand because the the solution is so obvious. So I I I'm begging someone to track me down and post on my LinkedIn why production growth makes sense. Because the best if your well payout is 18 to 24 months, every dollar you drill no matter how good the return is today, you can put that money into your stock if you're truly undervalued. Because you're not getting that cash back for 18 to 24 months. So you can't tell me that declining production is bad because all of your savings is in your capital. Return on capital employed is EBITDA divided by CapEx. Lower CapEx, rate of return goes up. That's, that's very simple. Price goes up because we go into decline on production. Like, So please, someone, call me, write me, smoke signal me, post on LinkedIn. Explain to me why production growth is a good thing.
0: Aaron, um, do you have anything for him? I got nothing.
2: I, I, you know, I think there's there's a there's a space for startup companies that that are, you know, getting the seed capital. That's that's a different environment. There's still going to be those guys, but you know, from an ongoing operation, you know, there's the the tenants that never go out of style. It's production, uh, running your business well, essentially. Yeah. You know, returns focused, protecting cash. Cash is king. You know, we've this has never been any different. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, the, the run up to 2014, that made a good company. And those companies that, that followed that had outsized returns. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we should be doing the same thing.
0: Yeah. You know, and I think that, you know, we were kind of talking about, you know, topically, you know, what do we want to talk about when we're at the conference? Because we have our own interest stuff. And, you know, in my mind, part of it is it's a leadership issue. It is. And, it is. And, 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 you know, some of these guys and, and my saying any pointing out anybody at the moment just because, you know, we're inviting them to come and talk. But from a leadership perspective, um, is that really the case here? Or are these guys, as you kind of indicated, just sort of floating down the river, you know, hey, well the board's directing me and right. you know, we're just gonna yeah kind of keep going as we go.
1: Again, this is and this is an issue for America, right? When the CEO makes thirty, forty, fifty times the amount that the people who actually do the work are doing it. And this is not to say it's being a CEO isn't hard and isn't high risk and isn't stress and puts your family, but the level of compensation that's being paid to people. If I was making 5 million bucks a year, I am just loving my life. And I'm going to investor conferences and people are talking to me and I'm sounding smart, but that's not my pay structure. That's not any private equity pay structure that I know. They get paid low salaries. They get paid like their employees. The differential is very small. And if I think that you should be able to put up every single person's salary on a piece of paper and put it in the kitchen and every single company in America where everyone looks at that and says, you know what? I kind of agree that that's what that guy, guy should be being paid. So is it a leadership issue? It's 100% a leadership issue. And that comes down to the board of directors where your board of directors is your friend, your buddy, your this, you're that. And you have them on there. Of course, they're going to give you a pay package because you're making 350 grand a year to go to four meetings. Like we need people who are, smart, sharp, in the business, independent, coming up, making shareholders' decisions. How many board members are just clipping coupons? I I mean, a lot, Yeah, a lot. It's not hard to be a board member, and especially when the management team comes in and walks you through, Here's my recommendation. And you go, yeah, that's cool. What time is dinner? Like, they we're going to have a great dinner. Are we going to Elway's tonight? We have the back yeah. private room. Oh, my God. I love Stags Leap Wine. Can we get some of that? Oh, I love the Ritz-Carlton. That's my favorite place to stay in Denver. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah, when can we wrap this up? Yeah. I got to go. Yeah, right. So, I mean, look, it's a systemic issue. And it's going to come up in the elections because of what's happened politically in terms of all this comp. And it comes down at the end of the day to the board of directors. Board of directors are not stewarding shareholders' capitals. That can be easily fixed. There are an incredible amount of smart, competent people who can sit on boards and help make better decisions. And they should have to own a large company, like large percentage of the stock to be on that. Not options, but I'm on the board, I own 3%, which is half of my net worth. That's how you should be on the board. Interesting.
0: All righty. Wow.
1: There you There's go. There's been hey. a whirlwind here. Whirlwind.
2: For, uh, I've had a smile on my face the entire time as we we're talking about this. This is great. Yeah, I, well, say, I, just, gotta,
1: I appreciate very much that you invite me on this. I love podcasts. I love what they're doing. I think our industry is amazing. I think what we're doing is amazing and our energy is powering the world. I appreciate being on here for an hour. There's a lot of guys doing a lot of things that are advocating for our industry. I want our internal industry to make better financial decisions. And I only have 1,300 characters a day to do it on LinkedIn. So this was very helpful. Oh, you no, know. this is
0: uh, it has been great. You're not off the hook quite yet. Oh, right. okay. I, I got. Uh, well, uh, no, uh, we are going to
1: shift gears a little bit. Great. Uh,
0: just, you know, um, in that, uh, you know, because you kind of strike me as this, like, I wasn't sure if you were Canadian, um, but, you know, you clarified that. I, I guess maybe you're kind of a Yeah. Abdul. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, you know, so, so I'm assuming there's, there's this hockey, uh, aspect to you as well. There is. And, uh, are you a flames guy or, uh, avalanche or do you care or. Yeah, no, do have- I
1: do very much. Both, both my boys I have 12 and 14. Um, they're, they're wonderful kids. They're both hockey players. And uh, so I've coached hockey for a long time. The reason I say that story is when I moved to Denver in 2006, all my friends in Canada saw me at every Avs Flames game on TV because I was sitting in the second row screaming. Nice. <laughs> um, as my boys grew up and I coached hockey, I'm getting older. So some of the older Avalanche players had kids that were my kids' ages we became social and friends. And so then they were active Avalanche players while I was coaching their boys and we were under the, getting an opportunity to meet players and go to games. And so I was cheering for my friend. So I very quickly became a very, very avid abs fan. And so this nice. year when the flames played the abs in the first round of the playoffs, my family went, uh, there were three flames jerseys and one abs Jersey. My 12 year old did not talk to me for six days. <laughs> I was going to say, were you conflicted? And all Is of it? my <laughs> Canadian friends said, I can't believe you are such a traitor, but you know, I love Denver, Denver's home. I love, I love Calgary. It's a wonderful city. Um, but yeah, huge hockey guy. I'm really excited about the abs this year. McKinnon so am I. Is a actually, dud. Um, so yeah, you know what? When
0: you think about it, and and Bednar right, you know he was under the gun. He was. Um, and then you know takes him from last to round one, and this year comes to round two, and frankly. I got to be honest with you, that was a rather weak way for the Sharks to advance us on that one-off, quote-unquote, off 100%. Yeah. So, you know. Well, and
1: and if you, not, because I know all the Intercom listeners out there really wanted their hockey debrief, but, you know, again, (laughs) like energy, let's use professional sports as an analogy for compensation. When you perform, you get paid. And when you stop performing, you get bought out. Can you imagine if there was free agency amongst oil executives? where you're able to buy out guys or trade. I'm going to trade you my CFO for your BD and three future considerations or buy out guys' contracts and just ax them. And you could like have the accountability that professional sports teams have. Like, you better perform every single day or you are done in professional sports because there's 10,000 people that want your job. Oh, completely. And right now in oil and gas, there's so many people unemployed and so many people looking up like monkeys in a tree. Everyone looking down sees nothing but smiles. Everyone looking up sees nothing but assholes. And they want that job. So give people the opportunity. Well, they Hold want that
0: compensation. So and, and which, comp. Which is what the industry has without the accountability for that
1: performance. 100%. 100%. <laughs> um yeah so
0: so hockey um my understanding is y- you 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 play squash is that right it is that is. The, is that the one with the shuttlecock
1: it's it's no. <laughs> it's so it's it's like racquetball only better in every way um no so i grew up that's that's uh i was a competitive athlete i was on the u.s national team many many years ago playing squash um play doubles now still but i There is a level where you just can no longer play the way you used to. And so I think the last match I played was in a charity event. I think I might have screamed, broken a racket and walked off the court and retired. (laughs) As you can imagine, I'm a fairly fiery personality. But no, I mean, squash is an amazing sport. I was so lucky. I got to go to Cairo twice, played in the Pan Am Games, played the World Championships. My parents sent me when I was 16 years old to go uh, to Australia for four weeks by myself, which was which I cannot even imagine doing that with my kids now. Right. Talk about how parenting has changed. But um, <laughs> yeah, so squash and and then I play a lot of golf. Gotcha. Except now I'm very busy, so I haven't actually played very much golf this summer. But generally, <laughs> I play a lot of golf.
0: Excellent.
1: I've got one last one for Fire you. Fire away. Are you sure about this? I open <laughs> open it. Alrighty.
0: From the interwebs, uh, we've got somebody out there who wants to know. Uh if you're wearing your uh, a gold tiger stripe tracksuit, what's up with that?
1: Yeah. Yeah, there so there may have been an incident in Vegas when we were celebrating uh the success of One Energy Partners. I brought some friends out to Vegas and on a mannequin there was the most glorious tracksuit that is blue with gold stripes with tigers and toucans. And my buddy looked at me and said, I don't care how much that costs. You have to wear that. So we walked into the store. <laughs> I slapped down my credit card. I bought it. I, fortunately, it was only $180. So don't think I'm rolling big. Yeah. I went out in Vegas in that, that night. And I came up with a fake personality that had just sold my retirement home business. And people like, just assumed I was a celebrity because no one on earth would wear this. Exactly. We were getting bottle <laughs> service at bars, getting into everywhere. It was the craziest night. And it and so, yeah, I did not wear my tiger outfit today, but I did get some matching custom tiger shoes with a gold tip. So maybe the next time at the conference, at the no, conference. I'll be the guy <laughs> in the second row wearing the tiger suit. What you do you, you really that? don't have to. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> hey, man, thank you very much for being here. Thanks today. for having uh, me, guys. Keep up the great work with the podcast.
0: Thank you very much. If uh, anybody out there has any questions that we can forward along to David, um, you, know, you can certainly do it through his uh, LinkedIn account and take a look at the hot take of the day. Um, or you can email us uh, here at intercom at uh, uh, the OG podcast at intercominc.com. Again, thank you for being here. Really appreciate your participation. This is actually, uh, we've, we've pulled it in just a little bit over an hour. So great. that's been great.
1: Thanks, guys. Thank, and thank you. you.